story is told of a man by the name of Scott who received a parrot for his birthday. This bird was an adult parrot with a bad attitude and even worse vocabulary. Every other word was an expletive. Those that weren't were, to say the least, very rude. So Scott tried hard to change the bird's attitude. He was constantly saying polite words, playing soft music for the bird, anything he could think of to set a good example for this parrot that he had gotten as a gift, but nothing worked. And he got frustrated, and he began to yell at the bird, and the bird would yell back. You know, he began to try to figure out a way, you know, the angrier he got with the bird, the meaner the bird got, and the uglier it got. You know, even kind of gave it the old tweak the beak thing. You know, we had a parrot once, and, and I know exactly how this goes. This bird was the meanest Mexican redhead parrot anybody could ever own. I don't know what we were thinking when we got this thing. But, you know, you'd put your hand in, it would bite you. And, you know, when they teach you, just kind of flip its beak, you know, and it bites you again. And you flip its beak, it bite you again. And finally, I knocked it out one day. <laughs> There's no way. I hit him with the right cross, you know. I just reverted back to my old Pittsburgh days. It was like... You know, and then, and then when, so, we, we, so we gave it away to a Marine. <laughs> we did. We did. We actually did. But anyway, so back to Scott. So Scott's trying to teach this bird, and he got so frustrated with it, he, he shoves his parrot, you know, live screaming, yelling, swearing at him in the freezer. And he shuts the door, and he just hears this. Then he hears kicking the door and pounding the door. And, man, this bird is, like, out of control. And then all of a sudden, silence. Nothing. Now, Scott's feeling bad like I did when I knocked out the parrot. Scott's feeling bad that he killed the bird. And so he goes and he opens the freezer, and as he reaches his hand and the bird walks out, nice, gently, onto his arms, stops, looks at him, and says to him, he says, you know what, if, if, if it would be okay or not too much trouble, he says, you know, I will try to correct my behavior and my language and my actions, and I beg of you and I ask for your forgiveness, and I'll endeavor to correct this awful behavior of mine. Scott's like blown away. And just when he was about to ask what happened, the bird looks at him and says, well, if it wouldn't be too much trouble, may I ask what the chicken did wrong? <laughs> now that's one smart bird. You know, and as we continue in our study of the events leading up to, you know, it's great, an hour early, you guys are sharper today than you've ever been. This is great. You know, Jim talking about, you know, Sylvia, hey, we got this hot program for Easter. You know, they're hot too. You know, it's just different levels. It's kind of like going to the Mexican restaurant. You know, get that, you know, the mild salsa, and then you go for the really, the nuclear stuff, you know? And, and it's kind of like, that's, that's what we're going to have, isn't it, Sylvia? As we're looking forward, praise God. We're looking forward to the program. I've seen it. I know what's going on, man. It's exciting. And you know what? You want to invite people to come. Because not only will they be blessed by the worship and the music and by their presence with you, but God will reach them right where they are through the Word of God. So I want to challenge you and encourage you to be praying for and thinking about the people you want to invite and to take advantage of that opportunity. Anyway, back on, on, on the road as we're looking at the events that are leading up to the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we'll again meet some folks who could learn a lot from that parrot. Yet in spite of overwhelming evidence that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, they refused to recognize and accept him as such. 
Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, and the momentum has been building for some time. As they travel, there is a sense of excitement and anticipation that filled the air, and with good reason. You know, as if to top off everything else Jesus did, Lazarus had been raised from the dead, and his life has caused quite a commotion. In fact, the biblical account tells us because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the religious leaders got together and had finally had enough. And at that point, they decided that they were going to conspire to kill him because of what he was doing. As they approached Jerusalem and Jericho, the eyes of a blind beggar are opened by Jesus. Another sign that Jesus is the one, the Savior, the Christ that they have been waiting for. God's prophet, specifically Isaiah, Isaiah 61, said that when Messiah comes, he would open the eyes of the blind. The answer that he gave to a doubting John the Baptist as John the Baptist awaited sure execution, he wanted to make sure that he had put his faith and his hope and his trust in the promised one of God. And the answer was, yes, you have. You know, even a rich, rotten tax gatherer, Zacchaeus, is forgiven and comes to faith that Jesus is the Christ in Jericho. And as they approach Jerusalem, the crowds break out and praise to the Lord. As we saw the last time we were together, they laid their garments on the ground and palm branches they held in honor of him. And they honored him and recognized as Jesus was presented as the King of kings and Lord of lords. As he entered Jer at Jerusalem riding on a colt as a peaceful conqueror, fulfilling God's promise made 100 and 73,880 days prior to the very day through Daniel the prophet. In addition to singing and laying of garments, they were proclaiming literally, salvation has come from above. Isn't that great? Palm Sunday. It was Palm Sunday, and, a, and because of a sore throat, five-year-old Johnny stayed home from church with a babysitter. And when the family returned home, they were carrying several branches of palm and the boy asked it what they were for, and they said to him, people held them over Jesus' head as he walked by. And he got all sad and, and discouraged by it, and he said, wouldn't you know it? The one Sunday I don't go, he shows up. <laughs> you know, just that misunderstanding of what's going on, that childish view of Scripture, and yet at the same time, this momentum shifts in, in such a dr drastic and dramatic way. Jesus presents himself as king, and within a short period of time, all of a sudden the momentum changes. One of, his, one of his own betrays him. He's arrested in the garden. His disciples are sleeping as he agonizes over the events that are to come. He asks him, could you please just stay up and wait and watch with me? And that's where we learn that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He was arrested. Peter denied him. And now we come to the trial of Jesus that we'll look at from the gospel account in Luke chapter 23. Turn with me to Luke 23 as we'll examine the trial of Jesus and see what it is that God would have us learn from this particular account. In Luke chapter 23... We read, Then the whole body of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. And Pilate said to the chief priests and to the multitudes, I find no fault in this man. 
But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. But when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he had learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. It says, Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there, accusing him vehemently. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been at enmity with each other. And Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion, and behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you have made against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out altogether, saying, Away with this man, and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for a certain insurrection made in the city and for murder. And Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has this man done? I find in him no guilt demanding death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices, asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand should be granted. And he released the man they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. You know, recently there have been some trials and grand jury investigations that have generated much media attention. Some have even been tagged in one case, that you know, the trial of the century. And if that's true, then Jesus' trial, the trial of Jesus Christ, easily could be called the trial of all times. As we learn from the account in in Luke's gospel that Jesus is put on trial before Pilate and also before Herod. And this was just one stage of the travesty of justice ending with Christ's execution on the cross. And what's particularly significant is that from this this entire encounter can be summed up by Pilate's own pronouncement. If you'll notice, he says three different times, I find no fault in him. The NIV says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. It's a legal phrase literally meant that there was not one shred of evidence against Jesus. The accusations were all lies. And so from this particular account, we're going to take a look at five crucial observations concerning the trial of Jesus. If you've got your bulletins, you'll see there's a place to take notes. But number one, the accusations before Pilate were not convincing. As I mentioned, Pilate said three different times in verse 4, if you look at it and note it, he says, I find no guilt in this man. Again in verse 14, he says, I find no guilt in this man. And again in verse 22, he says a third time, I have found no guilt in this man. I have found in him no guilt. Pilate said he found no fault in Jesus. 
and justice and legality ruled the Roman world. They took pride in being a civilized world empire and nobody knew Roman law better than the procurators who ruled with all the authority of the emperor. It was important for Rome to follow legal protocol. We see it when Paul, for example, if you flip ahead to Acts chapter 16, we see an example of this when Paul was wrongly arrested in Philippi. And in, and in Acts chapter 16, we see the fear that was placed in the hearts of those who were involved in that. As you look at the protocol and the legal system that, that was in existence, in Acts chapter 16, if you look at verse 35, it says, And when day came, this is after Paul and Silas had spent the night in prison, it says, And when day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now, therefore, come out and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now they're sending us away secretly? No, no, you're not going to do that. He says, No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. Said, man, you know what? They're not going to just ship us out the back door and let us go out quietly. There's a principle that's at stake here. There's a principle that's involved. You know, you made this. You know, you made this decision. It was a decision that you made, and now you need to be held accountable for that decision. We're just not going to sneak away and go away. You violated your own Roman laws and your own Roman jurisdiction and your judicial process and due process. You have violated a high standard of the law, and if they want us to leave, they can come and get us and they can escort us out so that all know that we're not guilty of that sin and that crime and the policeman reported these words to the chief magistrates and when they heard and they were afraid when they heard they were Romans uh oh you go get them no I can just see no you go get them no you go get them out of there I'm not going to go get them you go get them you know, and it says, and they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. I'm sure they did. I'm sure they were begging them to leave the city. You know, if you go back to the trial of Jesus, notice that Pilate had the authority to release Jesus or kill him. And as he examined the charges and the evidence, he proclaimed, I find no fault in him. Why not? What were the charges against Jesus? What were the charges that were brought forward? Notice in, verse, in chapter 23, if you'll notice what he is saying, they said that they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation. Well, what does that mean? They weren't specific. They didn't have any evidence. They had no incidents that they could bring up. It's like, you know what? There's just no truth to that whatsoever. And then they went on to say, and he forbids the paying of taxes to Caesar. No, anybody that has an understanding of the biblical record knows what? That's not true. And in fact, if you, go, if you turn back to the book of Matthew, you'll see a very, you know, a, a very real encounter as it relates to this charge that, that they make against them about taxes and paying taxes. And in Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, it says, Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with Herodians, saying, Teacher... We know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. 
and they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they marveled and leaving him, they went away. They tried to get him on the tax thing. And he said, hey, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so when you go back to the accusation in Luke chapter 23 saying that he forbid to, to pay the taxes to Caesar, that was a lie. There was no truth to that whatsoever. He claimed to be Christ, the king, saying that he himself is Christ, a king, and Jesus did not deny this. This would be a major concern to Pilate on the basis of Rome's sovereignty, yet Jesus did not deny this, and Pilate had no problem with it because Jesus did not encourage any insurrection. I find it fascinating that the one that they wanted to be released from prison, if you'll notice, was guilty of insurrection and murder. And it's the same accusation they just made against Jesus. It just shows as these things are held to the light that they had an agenda. And they were looking for a way to satisfy their agenda at the expense of truth. We've got to be careful in life that we never have an agenda that is so strong that it precludes God's truth. That we want to accomplish and do something so badly that we lay aside the truth of the Word of God. We have got to be careful that we are committed to doing God's will and not our own desires. That his will come first in everything. Because if we do it any other way as we see here, they laid aside truth for an agenda and it led to their own destruction. Don't buy into the lie. Trust God. Trust his truth. The reliability of the word of God. Be faithful to live your life according to God's truths, trusting him and the blessings that come with making right decisions according to the word of God. Some of you are sitting here today and you are struggling with doing things your way versus God's way. I know that because we are all in the same struggle every day. Will I commit to doing things the way that God says to do them or will I take matters into my own hand and do what I want to do because I just frankly want to do it that badly? And God says, don't be deceived. Trust the word of God for there's blessings with truth and blessings with right living and there's consequences when we take matters in our own hand and that's exactly what these religious leaders did. They hated him, they wanted to kill him, and they were looking for a way to get it done. And even when they didn't have a valid way to do it, they did it nonetheless. And they suffered the consequences because of it. False witnesses were even brought against Jesus, and yet he did not respond. If you'll turn to Matthew again and look at the account that's found in Matthew 27. It's a wonderful example for all of us who have ever been wrongly accused as to how to relate to those accusations. But in Matthew 27, notice in verse 11, it says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he made no answer. You'll see the same is true when he stood before Herod. He gave him no answer. And the reason that that's so amazing is because, you know, Jesus never accused in return. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. First Peter 2 tells us, while being insulted, even on the cross, he did not cast insults at those who were insulting him. 
Well, being wrongly accused by these, falsely accused by false witnesses, he didn't get angry. He didn't return the accusations. He didn't become defensive. And the way that he responded is, is important for every one of us who have ever been wrongly accused in our life. And very simply, he kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. And you know, and I struggle, frankly, as I read the account of Paul and Silas, as they forced the chief magistrates to come to him publicly and ask them you know, to be released from prison. And yet I also struggle with what I see Jesus doing as he doesn't answer back his accusers and a gentle answer turns away wrath. And he didn't answer his accusers. He didn't say anything about them because Jesus lived in such a way that those who were seeking truth, his life demolished the accusations that were made. And there's a balance there. And personally, I struggle, and I'm not really sure, and it's one of those areas that God's working out in my life. You know, how, how do we do that which is right before God when we see this balance or this struggle that Jesus didn't answer his accusers and he lived in such a way and he trusted him, his life in such a way to God, the Father who judges righteously. And yet we see an example of Paul and Silas saying, no, you know what, there's a public statement that must be made because it was a public accusation. And so there's a struggle that's there. And I, I don't have an answer for that. And those are the ways that God works out, you know, our salvation with fear and trembling as he conforms us into the image of his son and it keeps us close to him and it keeps us on his knees on our knees so that we we try to understand God what is it you want me to do in this situation in this situation and so we look at that and I praise God for what I see in the life of Jesus because he's our example you know forget about trying to be like anybody else try to be more like Jesus trust in God who judges righteously do not retaliate, don't be angry, and don't throw accusations, and don't look for vindication in life. Live your life in such a manner that's worthy of our calling as Christians, but also in such a way that when those are out there want to make false accusations against you, the evidence is so overwhelming that there's no basis for anything that they say. And those who want to know the truth will seek it. And those who want to just validate and justify what they've already come to the conclusion without examining the evidence, the Bible says it's folly for a man to give an answer before he hears a matter. You know, and, 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 and we look at this and, and it's a beautiful example for me and it's, and it's a beautiful example for all of us as to how to conduct ourselves in those times of accusation. If Jesus could witness the good confession before Pilate. We're told from 1 Timothy 6 that Jesus was a witness of the good confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of God's love, that God loves the most hideous people of which I am one and so are you, that God loves us and he sent Christ to die for us. And as we look at this, you'll see the second thing is in verses 6 through 12, you know, the appearance before Herod going back to Luke chapter 23 the, before, the parents before Herod really added nothing but contempt and mockery. You'll notice in verses 6 through 12, you know, Pilate, man, Pilate's on the run. He doesn't know what to do. He's, he's got a problem here. He finds no fault in this man, and yet at the same time, he hears the people yelling. They, you know, he knows where this is all heading. He's been there enough. He's judged enough cases. He knows where this is going. And he heard the magic word that this man was from Galilee. Loophole. This is beautiful. 
Pilate heard it. When he heard it in verse 6, he heard he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at the time. You can imagine the relief of Pilate going, Woo! Man, off the hook here. You know what? Oh, I'm sorry. You're in the wrong court. This is a municipal court, not a superior court. Oh, we've got to send you to another court. Man, glad that one's out of my hair. And so he sends him to Herod. And when he learned he belonged to Herod, he sent him to him in verse 8. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. For he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him. And he was hoping to see some sign performed by him. As Pilate tries to turn Jesus loose, the religious leaders wouldn't allow it to happen. They insisted that they, that they continue to try him. He heard he's from Galilee. He passed him on to Herod. And Herod's expectations were unfulfilled in this meeting with Jesus, as we see. It says, and he questioned him at some length. But notice, Jesus never answered him. He didn't answer him because he knew his heart. He knew Herod. He called him a fox in another account, in the gospel account. He says, that cunning fox, he's deceitful. You know, I know his heart because God knows all our hearts. Everything is open and laid bare to him to whom we have to do. It's an amazing thought that every person here and every person in the world, God knows all of our thoughts. How awesome is our God. All things are open and laid bare to him to whom we have to give an account. He knew Herod's thoughts. He knew that he was cunning, that he was deceitful. He knew that he was a miserable human being as all of his family was. They were evil people. And he never answered any of his accusations. And the only reason that Herod wanted to meet Jesus was so that Jesus could entertain him with some type of miracle. If you remember the multitudes that followed Jesus, and Jesus fed them, and man, they were all excited, and they started to follow him. But then Jesus started to preach truth to them started to teach him biblical sound doctrine, the truth of the word of God. And you know what? They went, no, we just came for the entertainment. We didn't come to be confronted with truth. Now contrast the difference between Zacchaeus and Herod. Zacchaeus sought out Jesus because he was seeking truth. Zacchaeus sought out Jesus because he was in search of God's forgiveness. Zacchaeus sought out Jesus because he wanted to be born again from above by the will of God and not by the will of man. Zacchaeus sought out Jesus because he wanted a different life than the one he was living, and he heard that Jesus changes lives. Zacchaeus sought out truth, and all of us who seek God's truth will not be disappointed. But if you come to be entertained, it won't last very long. Because God's not in the entertainment business. The church of Jesus Christ is not in the entertainment business. We're here to preach Christ and Him crucified. I'm here to teach biblical truth and sound doctrine. I'm here to be confronted myself and to confront you with the truth of God's word so that God's spirit can lead you into truth and lead you into understanding and lead you into conviction of sin and righteousness. I'm here to to preach the word of God in season and out, not to entertain in a a culture that the word of God warns will want to be more increasingly tickled by those things that they come to hear. This isn't a God show. This is about the Word of God. This is about the truth of God. And if you've come to seek truth, then you'll find it because God says, whosoever calls upon the Lord will not be disappointed. Zacchaeus wasn't disappointed 
At the end of his encounter with Jesus, he became a son of Abraham for trusting and believing in Jesus Christ. And there was joy in his heart. There was peace with God. There was reconciliation with God because he came to believe on him as a savior. Herod wanted to be entertained and Jesus would have none of it because Jesus didn't come to entertain. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. It's a wonderful truth, but the appearance before Herod really added nothing but mockery. His desire wasn't to sincerely seek Jesus and seek his truth and to know his true identity and find out who he really was. Now, he was there just to be entertained like so many today in our culture. And I'm going to challenge you to consider each week that you come, come with a heart that is seeking God's truth and God will meet you here and he will change your life for the better. In every area, in your relationships, in your finances, as was mentioned, you know, in, in, in your, your conduct and in your speech and in your attitudes and in your thought life, in everything that you do, how you relate to your spouse and to your children, how children relate to their parents. I mean, in every area of life, the truth of God's word transcends it all. He gives you hope when you're in affliction. He comes alongside of us with the spirit of God, according to 2 Corinthians 1, and comforts us with the same comfort by which we've been comforted in our time of affliction. We all come with pains and hurts and suffering in different areas, and he is here to meet you and to comfort you and to put his arms around you and to say, just hang in there a little longer because I'm coming soon. See, Herod was a fox. He was cunning. He was deceitful. He thought he was pretty sharp, but he wasn't sharper than God. Our Lord didn't have one word for Herod. Herod had gone past the point of no return. He's on his way to a lost eternity. And I'll tell you what, it's a very sobering thing. And it troubles my heart to recognize as we read through the word of God that God's forgiveness and his mercy are offered for a limited time. And then the window shuts. And as I said with Alexander the Great, and the light is extinguished. And then judgment comes. It's appointed for man to die once. And then comes judgment. God in his great love offers us mercy today. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Have you come to trust in him? Have you come to believe on him? Have you come to accept his mercy at the cross on your behalf? That's the account that we're reading. The trial of Jesus leads to the crucifixion, but the crucifixion was the appointed plan of God to redeem men to himself. Number three, the attempt, to release, the attempt of Pilate to release Jesus was absolute proof of his innocence. If you look at verses 13 through 17, it says, And Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers of the people. And he said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I find no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he has sent him back to me. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. 
You know, I got to believe that Pilate at that point was feeling pretty good about the fact he was going to get out of this because Herod had tried him and found no guilt in him, sent him back to Pilate. Pilate had the perfect excuse to let him go. Hey, Herod didn't find him guilty. Who am I to find him guilty? I find no fault in this man. Let him go. But the problem was, if there was any guilt at all in, in Jesus, Pilate would have been constrained by the law to do anything but to attempt to release him. In fact, he would have been delighted in exercising his authority and making the people happy, yet he knew he had no legal right to condemn Jesus, and God in his mercy gave Pilate every opportunity to do the right thing. But you'll notice what happens, and it's typical of many. He says, I will therefore punish him and release him. He says he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But notice the, cry, the, the crowd cried out all together saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for a certain insurrection made in the city and for murder. And Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept calling out, crucify him, crucify him. He's saying, but I find no guilt in him. But they continued and they were insistent. And unfortunately, what happens is, man, the guys started to give in to peer pressure. You know, the politics kicked in. He wanted to be more popular with people than be right before God. And God help us, people, listen. Don't ever live your life worrying about being popular with men. Live your life to please God. Do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind that you'll know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The Bible says don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You'll notice that Pilate and Herod had nothing to do with each other. They hated each other. Now the only thing they had in common was their evil towards Jesus. Evil people hang out with one another. You know, we told our children as they were growing up, they'd say, but you know what, but, but I'm not like him or her. But you hang around them, you are. What fellowship does darkness have with light? How comfortable can you be in an environment with ungodly people who curse our God, who live in a way that's not pleasing to God, who try to encourage us to do things that are wrong before God, how in the world can we say that we're comfortable in that environment? We need to be in the world, but not of it. We need to be there as light and salt. We're to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ by living our life in such a way that people become so attractive to how we live, they want to know our Savior. But we cannot win the world for Christ by being like everyone else. We must live in a manner that's worthy of our calling. Read Ephesians 4. Read Galatians 5. You know what? Therefore, no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, dark and excluded from the things of God, darkened in their understanding. If you used to lie, now tell the truth. If you used to be lazy, now go to work. If you used to be angry, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry at righteous reasons and not selfish reasons because you didn't get your way. There is a different life that is called for God's people and he empowers us to live it through the Spirit of God who indwells us and resides in us. We need to be obedient in our calling. Make a difference in the world. Be so attractive that people can't wait to ask you what it is about you that's so different than the rest of the world. Stop living to please people. And start living to please God. Because you and I will never stand before the judgment seat of Joe, Harry, Sally, or anybody else. We will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. 
and give an account of how we lived our lives as believers in God's world this side of eternity. Some of us need to confess here and now that we've been more worried about pleasing people than pleasing God. Confess your sin before God today. Repent of your sin and make a commitment today. Today, Lord, I will start living a life that's pleasing to you. I will make a difference in my school. I will make a difference on my sporting team. I will make a difference in my business. I will make a difference in my community. I will make a difference in my family. I will make a difference because you live within me and you have given me a spirit of power and not of timidity. I will make a difference for you because you saved me and I owe you everything. Pilate had a chance to do the right thing and he sold out to be more popular with people than pleasing to God. God help us never to be like Pilate. Number four, the attitude of the religious leaders condemned them without cause. In verses 18 through 24, you'll notice that it says very clearly, but they cried out all together saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. And he is the one who had been thrown into prison for a certain insurrection made in the city and for murder. And as I mentioned, it's, it's no irony here that they accuse Jesus of insurrection and they wanna release a guy who was found guilty of insurrection. But, oh, no big deal, because they have an agenda, and it really doesn't matter what the evidence is. That's the way it's going to go. And Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again and kept on calling out. And they called out, crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no fault, demanding death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were insistent. And with loud voices asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. Have you ever noticed? How often when our arguments are so weak and lacking any support that we think if we raise our voice, it'll make us more correct. Have you ever noticed that? Have you guys ever do that? I don't know. I've seen it happen. Listen, you know what? Getting louder doesn't make you any smarter. In fact, if anything, it just reveals your ignorance. I think it was Tom, I forget who it was, Tom Sawyer or somebody like that, Mark Twain, who said something like, you know what, hey, why open your mouth? You know, at least allow people to, to, to think maybe that you're stupid, but why open your mouth and prove it beyond a reasonable doubt? You know, people may think something, but don't open your mouth and, and you know, and, and validate what it is they think of you. You know, and, and that's basically this, this crowd, this, this mob mentality. They started to raise their voice, and, and it teaches us, you know what, don't be part of the mob mentality. Do you realize that all it takes is one person, one voice of reason to stand up to the mob and say, you know what, that's stupid. That's foolish. There's no evidence for that. What you want to do is wrong. Let's just slow down for a minute. And let's see what God has to say. One person. You can be that person. In whatever environment God has you, you can be that person. That one voice of sound biblical reasoning that God can use to make a huge difference in your world. Pilate didn't want to go there. The voices got louder. He got more and more afraid. He wanted to be pleasing to the people and not pleasing to God. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand should be granted. How sad that is. He even tried to play on their own Jewish customs and tradition. 
of releasing a prisoner at the time of Passover. So, well, wait a minute. Oh, I got an idea. You people like every year for somebody to be released, and here, I'll, I'll give you a suggestion. I'll try to find a way out of this. But it didn't happen. And in verse 25, when we close with this, Pilate's act of releasing Barabbas demonstrated the real purpose of Christ's death. And he released the man that they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Pilate's act of releasing Barabbas helps us to see what God's plan is all about. Everything that we see is all in the plan of God. God's got it all under control. Jesus was not released, and Barabbas was, and it was according to the word of God. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. James and 1 Peter chapter 3. In verse 18, we read these words. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. For Christ died for sins once for all. Jesus on the cross said it's finished. It's done. It's over. I came and I did what I was sent to accomplish. I died upon the cross for the sins of the world once for all. It is finished. There is nothing that you and I can do to add to what Jesus has done. Three days later, he rose in victory, triumphant over the grave, according to the word of God. He died once, the just for the unjust. On one hand was a man who was guilty of murder. He was a sinner, and he was set free. On the other hand was a man guilty of nothing, who knew no sin. He was executed in the place of the man who was guilty. Men and women, that's the point of the cross. That Jesus Christ died in our place, the just for the unjust. Jesus is our scapegoat. He's our substitute. And because he did this, we can be set free. The only way that any of us could ever get to heaven is by believing that Jesus died as a substitute for our sin. That we're guilty before God and by putting our trust in his substitutionary death in our place, that is the only way our sin can be forgiven and removed. Jesus, the one who is just, died for you and me, the ones who are unjust. Once and for all to set us free from sin, do you know him today as your Savior? Have you come to recognize your guilt before God? Have you repented of guilt and responded by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ on the cross on your behalf and the power of his resurrection? If you don't know, then today's the day. If you've come to seek truth and you've come to seek forgiveness, then you can find it right here and right now by trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. In closing, I challenge anyone who is here that may not know of a relationship with God that today would be the day. I also challenge the rest of us who have come to faith in Christ at some point in our life that we never take for granted that which he did for us on the cross, the just 
the one who is not guilty of anything, taking upon the sins of the world so that you and I could be forgiven. The just for the unjust, dying once for our sins. He paid the price. Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, and thank you for the truth. And thank you for the truth that sets us free. And I'm speaking specifically of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes into the Father but through me. Lord, as we consider what we've learned and we consider this great, how great a price that Jesus paid upon the cross, that he died once for all, we realize there's nothing that we can do to add to what he did because it is finished. The only thing that we can do in humility is follow, fall upon your mercy and beg your forgiveness. And you tell us, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God, I pray for anyone who's here or listening to this that is not sure of their relationship with you, that today they would recognize their guilt and their need of forgiveness. And they would trust in Jesus Christ, his death upon the cross and the power of his resurrection. That they would believe on his name right here and right now. And that they would trust your word when it tells us that those who receive him, speaking of Jesus, to them you have given the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. Amen.